well, I've made two mistakes so far. <laughs> um, so tonight we'll be continuing on with the series of the ten paramis, or requisites for enlightenment. And um, most of these talks will be pretty much standalone talks, so that I'm not going through each week trying to get all of the new people up to uh, the same level as everyone else. Yeah. It just becomes too much repetition for those whom are staying here for any period of time. And so, it, um, just in ever so brief form, to say that you know these paramis are really wholesome qualities that come forth in the awakened mind. And they're also qualities that we can turn our attention to in our lives, which help us to both live and practice, which you know should always be right together, um, no division, no separation, but that enables us to Go on this, embark on this endeavor of awakening from a really broad view, a broad way of living and practice, where it includes the welfare and benefit of all beings everywhere. And I just know in my own life that that this has felt so essential. You know that if I get contracted within my liberation. You know, and just getting into really refined states of concentration, that there, it doesn't make sense in the world. It doesn't make sense in my life. But when what I'm doing, what I'm looking into, can really have a benefit for all beings everywhere. And this is really what we see through wisdom, because we see the interconnectedness. And so these qualities that uh, the paramis are about, and the paramis being uh, dana or generosity, virtue, renunciation, wisdom, um, effort, patience, truthfulness, loving kindness, resolve, having determination, uh, equanimity. You know, these, these qualities they get strengthened because these are the qualities that when they come forth in life are of benefit, not to ourselves alone, but to all beings. And they come, you know, with the strengthening of wisdom, they naturally come forth. But paying attention to these qualities is also you know, strengthening the wholesome in life, really turning the mind towards that which will support awakening. So tonight, looking at virtue, which is also sometimes called moral or ethical conduct, um, and this is where we include all of what we do and say in the spiritual journey, uh, as I'm beginning this, I'm just realizing that some of you were here in February when I was speaking about the Noble Eightfold Path, of which this is one limb of the Noble Eightfold Path. So for some of you, what I'm speaking about, you will have heard only very recently. But I, you know, just in saying that, uh, 
we come from a lineage of repetition where, you know, in reading the suttas, things are repeated over and over and over again. And I don't think that that was by mistake, that these teachings have such value that to hear them repeatedly and to hear them with beginner's mind. I know in Dharma talks, sometimes, you know, it's like a a topic comes up and, oh yeah, I've heard that before, and the mind shuts down. But in the silence, you know, when we've been really working with presence, the continuity of mindfulness, this brings about the freshness of mind. And these teachings can be heard in a whole new way. You know, just something brought to light, some little aspect of the teachings brought to light that becomes very freeing. So if you're one of those people that heard this not so long ago, I encourage you to practice beginner's mind. So virtue, moral or ethical conduct. Bhikkhu Bodhi, um, he... He speaks about uh, the spiritual, the whole of the spiritual path, likening it to a tree. And, you know, he talks about faith being the seed. It's the seed that helps us to begin our journey and it nourishes us in every phase of development. And then he says, virtue is the roots because it is what gives grounding to the tree. And, you know, virtue, ethical conduct, you know, taking care in our words and actions brings a great stability to the mind. You know, it really becomes a foundation in which we're sitting on. And then just to finish the tree off, he he likens concentration to the trunk, which gives strength and stability And wisdom is the branches which yield the flowers of enlightenment and the fruits of deliverance. If we don't have strong roots, our tree is not going to be able to mature, to grow. Virtue or ethical conduct really arises very naturally out of the compassionate heart, the heart that is inclusive, that cares. And, you know, we can find that loving kindness and compassion, the practice of that, really helps to strengthen our resolve to live ethically, to live with a moral conscience. Because when, you know, we cultivate a reverence for all life, when we break down the barriers of separation, which is what these practices help us to do, then, you know, when something is not seen as being separate, when something is cared for, there is no desire to cause harm. 
that this respect is naturally present. And so, you know, it's like we, we don't steal from those that we love and care for. We don't use our sexual energy in a way to cause harm to those that we love. We don't speak in a way that will cause pain. And we take care in our actions not to fall into heedlessness. And ethical conduct, the emphasis given to it is that of creating harmony. I know when I was first hearing about the precepts, I heard about them, you know, you know, in, in, interpret them as being like commandments and thou shall not. And there was a great rigidity in my mind with that and reaction, you know, just from my own upbringing um, and rebelliousness and, and, you know, just the places in my own uh, spiritual religious development that were uneasy with how I interpreted some of the Christian teachings. Um, not to say that that's what meant, but how I personally had become bound and constricted within that. And so, you know, at first the, these precepts to me were, were really um, not a welcome teaching. And, of course, that changed in sitting within the impact of my actions. And I know I hear it from many of you how we sit and, you know, the memories of the past replay. We feel the consequences of past unskillful actions. So, you know, that certainly comes to light in a retreat. But one of the things that sometimes when we look at the precepts doesn't really come to light you know, as we chant the precepts, maybe, at, you know, as we do, is that there is also something that is really wholesome that comes into play when we refrain from acting in unwholesome ways. And that for me, you know, the, the turning towards that which created harmony, that which honors this interconnectedness of life, that helped me to hold these precepts in really quite a joyful way. And that, you know, there is a real joy in the virtuous mind. You know, there's a great gladness. There's, um, there's a confidence that comes when, when we're standing on the foundation of virtue. You know, it's not a self-righteousness because none of this is about the perfection of I, me, and mine, which is also somewhere, you know, the way we can interpret the precepts. But, that you know, that's not what they're pointing to because, you know, in working with virtue, it has to be guided by right view and right intention. And your right view is, it's really helping us to see with these precepts around karma. You know, that when we do the unskillful, the unwholesome, there's consequences. When there is wholesome actions, there's an uplifting of the mind that happens. There is this natural care, you know, this responsiveness, this, this way of living that engenders harmony.
and right intention guides the living of these precepts to be based in the intention of care, compassion, loving kindness. Now this is a wholesome intention. I will be going through the precepts to some extent, um, lightly touching upon them. But I also want to emphasize before doing so that the necessity of letting this be a place of investigation, inquiry, where we do... uh, I, I mean... If we hold the precepts in a very rigid way, it can lead to suppression. It can lead to a fragmented mind. It can lead to great suffering. You know, if we think that, you know, if we don't use wisdom as we work, with these precepts, if we don't use it as a practice. And just to remind you that, you know, in all of these precepts, it speaks about them as a training, meaning that in a training we need practice so that there will be times where there's great learning. But that um, if we try to repress all that is unwholesome, if we try to repress anger, aversion, ill will, that this is like, you know, trying to put a little cork in the top of a huge volcano. And while the conditions are such in the volcano that it's not exploding, that cork might appear to be doing its job. But when the conditions are ripe and, you know, the earth is moving and that there's no, no choice but for that force to blow, that's what will happen. And so it's really important, even though, you know, we talk about restraint, even though it's like that refraining from, that has to be done from an exploration of what is happening and the pain, the attention to the effect of these unwholesome forces and also just knowing these forces in their nature. You know, that, that, oh. It's the place of exploring how when we identify with these states that this leads to suffering. And so, you know, it, it is important that we really bring in these phrases of the training so that it gives us that freedom to be able to touch these unwholesome states, 
but we do so with awareness. We do so learning about how when we identify with these states, that that just is what perpetuates suffering. That is what causes the torment. In looking or working with virtue, you know, we really become familiar with our own inner inclinations, our own tendencies, you know, just the habit patterns that we have where we create disharmony, dis-ease, where you know, people feel they can't trust us, where we feel we can't trust ourselves. And so we just, through careful observation, through wise attention, we become more attuned to the times where you know, we just fall into habit. And this is where we need to have a spirit of investigation and inquiry. You know, you, you keep falling in the same hole. You know, you got to look at what's happening here. What's the pull? What, what's, what's driving this? And, you know, we do this by way of, you know, just staying connected in the whole process, examining what's happening here. And doing so just with a sense of integrity, honestness, a kindness. You know, we're not looking to berate ourselves further. But we're looking to understand what these glitches are. What it is that's really obscuring this natural, radiant heart. And this is what these are. It's just habits of mind. Habits of delusion, not seeing clearly. Through our practice, we see the implications in you know just moments where um, anger is identified with the immense amount of suffering that can happen in just a split second. And likewise, we can also begin to feel the fruits of wholesome states of mind, fruits of moments of generosity, moments of kindness, of caring. Patro Rinpoche, who was a great Tibetan teacher and who lived in the 1800s, said, Do not take lightly small good deeds, believing they can hardly help. For drops of water, one by one, in time, fill a giant pot. And I'd like to share something from the suttas when the Buddha was speaking about to Ananda about the benefits of virtue. One day Ananda asked the Buddha, What, Lord, is the benefit of virtuous ways of conduct? What is their reward? The Buddha replied, Non-remorse, Ananda, 
is the benefit and reward of virtuous ways of conduct. And what, Lord, is the benefit and reward of non-remorse? Non-remorse has gladness as its benefit and reward. Gladness has joy as its benefit and reward. Serenity has happiness as its benefit and reward. Happiness has concentration as its benefit and reward. Concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they are as its benefit and reward. Knowledge and vision of things as they are has disenchantment and dispassion as its benefit and reward. Disenchantment and dispassion has knowledge and the vision of liberation as their reward. In this way, Ananda, virtuous ways of conduct lead step by step to the highest. In the undertaking of the precepts, we need to have a strong, both strong energy and resolve. And I'd like to share a a prayer that is by Sukhavati. He says, without a vow for the future from now on, there is no purification. So I make the vow for the future from now on that even at the cost of my life, I will do no negative action. When I came across that teaching, it brought a gulp. You know, even at the cost of my life, I will do no negative action. And in the Buddha's teachings, he too is uncompromising in the uprooting of hatred, anger in the mind. And, you know, just seeing the force of it in our minds. Now, certainly I'll speak for myself that, you know, it, it, it's got strong roots. There's, a, you know, a lot of entanglement there, a lot of power behind it, you know, a lot of momentum. And I you know, to some degree understand that without having a really strong resolve here, there's just, you know, this continual sense of being mowed over by it. That, you know, it's like when the mind gets so tired of, you know, entering into these habit patterns that cause suffering, that resolve comes up to work with this skillfully, to to really get to the roots of this so as to not continually repeat these patterns. And of course, that too, it has to be undertaken. That resolve has to be held with wisdom and compassion. Because without that, again, you know, it becomes just this torment in the mind. 
But the resolve in those moments where anger emerges, but just the resolve not to act out from that place, but to look right there, to look in the heat of it, so as to not cause further harm. It feels essential. You know, I, and I know, I think I've said many times that in my first retreats, really believing that if I just noted anger once, it would be gone forever. You know, just some deluded idea about it. And over my years of practice, becoming deeply humbled, just recognizing this isn't easy. Note that it isn't easy, but what choice do we have? when we really see the consequences of doing otherwise. And then that's where it becomes joyful. And that's where it doesn't matter what comes. This is just what we have to work with. And, you know, that that when our moment where that anger is arising, this is really the place that liberation is possible. Because this is where we can see into the roots of suffering when we're holding that in a wholesome, healthy way. A part of the compassion we need in working with the strengthening of virtue is what I spoke about this morning, this quality of forgiveness. You know, that as we find that we make mistakes, that there is uh, unskillful actions, this capacity to feel open to the pain and to forgive, to let go, you know, it doesn't help to beat ourselves up. This isn't what's useful. This is, you know, this becomes unskillful. And this is, um, you know, it, it can, that, that, that letting go, forgiving, can just also bring up that recommitment, that desire to just be more steadfast in our mindfulness, wise attention, so that we don't get pulled in to these actions that cause harm. I'd l- like to share with you some of the ways that Bhikkhu Bodhi, uh, in his book on the Eightfold Path, speaks about how you know, the training of virtue, ethical conduct, how it creates harmony. He says it creates harmony on a social level. Because people find that they can trust us. It creates a bonding, you know, a feeling of safety, of refuge. And we know this from being at places like IMS, where, you know, people living the precepts, the sense of safety that comes with that. And unfortunately, in the world, there isn't so many places where we experience that sense of safety. And so, you know, being here is really a reinforcement. 
And so in our daily lives, you know, in the way that we live, if we live honoring the precepts, honoring this virtuous heart, it just creates a ground of trust. And, you know, out of that can spring all kinds of goodness, you know, where others can, can feel safe to share, where they aren't you know, afraid of sharing because they might be trampled on, that, they, that beings feel cared and respected for, respected. You know, it's a basis of living in a harmonious community. He also says that we find harmony on a psychological level where, you know, we're just not caught in states of guilt, worry, and regret. We're at ease in ourselves, not having to defend ourselves and not having to armor ourselves. He says that there's a level of harmony on the karmic level. We start uh, cultivating wholesome seeds and are not perpetuating suffering any further, which can turn around the direction of our lives. We also find a strengthening of harmony on the contemplative level. And, you know, this is what we see where uh, the mind can concentrate, where there is a happiness in the mind. There is this, you know, great reward and benefit um, that leads to the deepening of insight and understanding. We can live with a basic motivation of in our lives calling forth qualities of care, loving kindness, and compassion. And this is something the Dalai Lama says. He says, once you have pure and sincere motivation, all the rest follows. You can develop this right attitude towards others on the basis of kindness, love, and respect, and on the clear realization of the oneness of all human beings. This is important because because others benefit by this motivation as much as anything we do. Then with a pure heart, you can carry on any work, and your profession becomes a real instrument to help the community." So in our lives, in the you know, strengthening of the quality of virtue, we can really look towards the underlying motivation in how we live, what we do, that it is based in kindness, respect, care. And you know, this sila, ethical conduct, it's not a chore when it's really based on the realization of the oneness of all beings. 
And this comes from, you know, not an intellectual idea, but when we just really see this, you know, we see this through our practice. We talk about it, the, you know, the interdependence, interconnectedness, interrelatedness. And it's just learning to live with the truth of that. And then this kindness naturally follows. The Dalai Lama also went, went on to say, when we are motivated by wisdom and compassion, the results of our actions benefit everyone, not just our individual selves or some immediate convenience. When we are able to recognize and forgive ignorant actions of the past, we gain the strength to constructively solve the problems of the present. I'd like to speak a little bit about the characteristics, function, manifestation, and proximate cause of virtue. The characteristic of virtue is that of composing, coordinating, and establishing. So we can compose the mind on our sincere and heartfelt motivations. We follow through with actions that are unwavering, in support of these motivations and are clearly guided by these motivations. It brings a consistency to the way that we live. It helps strengthen this sense of foundation. Its function is twofold, to dispel moral depravity and to strengthen blameless conduct. It um, helps us to restrain from entering into misconduct. And through this, we find the quality of blamelessness. Its manifestation is moral purity, the radiant heart that is unobscured. The proximate cause is uh, moral shame and moral dread, which some of you may be aware is Hiri and Otapa, um, which is said to be the guardians of the world. And moral shame is a uh, shame that spurs us into overcoming unwholesome mental states because we recognize that this really tarnishes, you know, it's like a blemish um, that. Uh, that really detracts from this sense of uprightness. And the, the moral dread, or is it often described as the fear of wrongdoing, more has to do with how the outer, outer world responds. You know, when we do things that really cause harm, you know, the others may blame us, see us as unworthy. And... Uh, we just, you know, feel the karmic imprint of that, and so this, the these moral shame and fear of wrongdoing, really pull us into heedfulness, 
pull us into, you know, just living respectfully. You know, with with moral shame, there comes this. It, it's really born out of self-respect and fear of wrongdoing, out of a moral consciousness that you know of just not wanting to cause harm in the world. This is again from Bhikkhu Bodhi. By cultivating within ourselves the qualities of moral shame and fear of wrongdoing, we not only accelerate our own progress along the path to deliverance, but also contribute our share toward the protection of the world. Given the intricate interconnections that hold between all living forms to make the sense of shame and fear of wrongdoing the guardians of our own minds is to make ourselves guardians of the world. As the roots of morality, these two qualities sustain the entire efficacy of the Buddha's liberating path as the safeguards of personal decency they at the same time preserve the dignity of the human race. When these two qualities are not present, just move into you know, a shamelessness. The things just deteriorate. The, you know, we, see, we see in the world when there's just no reference point of this ethics that there's just this decline. And, you know, the world becomes very dark and bleak. In the commentaries, it gets likened to, you know, the animal realms, the hell realms. The the, the it's darkness, and so this this helps us to see that, you know, just out of care and concern, respect, it brings a lightness, a brightness, a joy into the world. So the first precept, refraining from killing living beings. The other side of this being to practice compassionate action. So often we think of, okay, refrain from, you know, uh, try not to kill insects, try not to, to harm other forms of living beings. But, you know, there can be the wholesome edge of this where we can put into practice compassionate action, which in our lives can be quite simple. You know, just simple acts of kindness, simple acts of caring. Uh, You know, whether it's through what we do, what we say, that it it is just this uh, positive aspect of this training. Certainly an active form of working with this precept has to be to investigate in our own minds greed, aversion, ill will. To really overcome, come to know the roots of these states.
our basic kindness may not look that glamorous. And yet, you know, this is kind of a juice in life. Think back to when somebody was kind to you. Somebody did some action, maybe gave you a gift, or just, you know, in a moment of your suffering, they didn't turn their back. And the impact that that has, the potency of that. And, you know, we see in the world, you know, where if you're going through a bleak day and someone just for a moment is kind, it can help to just bring that ease, that sense of grace to the heart. This precept really helps us to live from a place of reverence for all life. You know, living from that understanding of interconnectedness. As a way of strengthening this precept, it can be very helpful to do metta or loving kindness practice, compassion practice. Because, you know, it just it brings that joy of the interconnectedness, the inclusion of heart, that the deep caring. The second precept to refrain from taking that which is not freely offered And on the positive side, the wholesome side can include the practice of generosity. You know, I think it's really important to give this balance. Um, you know, so in the refraining from taking that which is freely not freely offered, you know, refraining from stealing, from stealing, to refrain, uh, what what it points towards is not being deceitful, and really, you know, learning to live with um, a respect for material goods, but not from the place of entitlement. You know, it, it really helps us to, to work with the force of greed in the mind. You know, the, the force of greed, if we're you know, t- taking something, there's a sense of entitlement. The force of greed is really strong. And so, you know, when we practice in a wholesome way, that there's just, it, it, it brings about the mind of non-greed. It, it helps bring about contentment, ease. And, you know, another level of this in living in this world is, you know, not taking more than what is needed. That we live in a, on a planet of limited resources. And um, that if we all just follow this greed and wants and desires, that Things are running out. There won't be anything for future generations. You know, Gandhi once said, there's enough in the world for everyone's needs, but not enough for everyone's greed. And so really, you know, this, this precept investigating material goods, how we use it,
that we don't, that, you know, I'm watching like in the act of stealing or a sense of deceit, you know, um, entitlement, what's going on in the mind. We really, you know, as we explore this, begin to see how these states just lead to a crookedness in life. There, there is not, there's not that sense of uprightness. So, you know, countering this sense of entitlement through the practice of generosity that I spoke of last week, the practice of giving, offering. It's really different to live by way of what can I offer what can I give rather than what can life give me? What can I take? No, it just turns life right around. And so, you know, as a way of working with this precept, practicing generosity. The third precept is to undertake the training to refrain from any kind of sexual activity. That's how we have it on retreat and off retreat. Um, to refrain from using sexual energy unwisely or uncaringly. Um, the positive side of this precept too can be taken to be to practice responsibility in all of our relationships. Well, we only need to look at the number of people in the world to know what a strong force sexual energy can be. And ah, I came across an article one time that really was like, brought some understanding of, you know, just how difficult it is to work with the uh, power of sexual energy. And the article said that humans are more sensitive more sensitive to sexual stimulation than other living beings. And I read this around the time that I'd been watching a nature program. And nature programs, you know, creatures copulating all over the place. And then I read this about, you know, humans being more uh, sensitive to sexual stimulation. And it went on to say that uh, with animals... The instinct is periodic and seasonal, whereas in humans, it's continual. That's a lot to live with. So if you've ever been caught in lust, to know that you're not alone and that it is has a tremendous force and that... Um, you know, I at times completely understand the Buddha encouraging his monastics to be celibate, you know, just as a means of working with this sexual energy. And I think that we gain the value of that level of renunciation when we're here on retreat. And, you know, this just gives a container to work with this energy in, you know, to really be able to see it. You know, it's not uncommon on retreat that um, at some point we get immensely attracted to somebody. And uh, it, 
given that we're not acting out on this energy in any way, gives us a way to work, to be with this energy, to come to know it so that we aren't driven by it. Because we know, we see in the world the consequences of acting unskillfully on it in the pain that that leads to, um, horrendous pain and suffering, you know, rape, um, child abuse. And, you know, then, then there's even more subtle ways where we just manipulate, you know, can come from flirtatious energy where you may just be kind of flirting with someone on a whim, but not from a place of caring or respecting that person. And they may misinterpret that energy and then feel totally humiliated and really pained by the interaction. And, you know, it's, it's a force that we really need to come to see also in its nature as it is. Um, Otherwise, we will be acting on it in unskillful ways. You know, another way that the sexual energy manifests on retreat, you know, maybe we're attracted to somebody, um, it can also come through the realm of fantasy. And we just start to have, you know, really vivid, alluring fantasies. It's a place to pay attention. This is a great grounds for it to arise, because here we are, you know, not going to act on it, but to feel, to be with. To, you know, not to indulge in through the feeding of that fantasy, although what we might see is the compelling nature to do that. You know, just the force of desire that is there that wants to engage in that. But, you know, we also begin to feel how excruciating that is, how painful that is, and how. There's no substance. There's no, there, no happiness. No, the promise is not lived up to. And so, you know, it's a valuable way we can explore this precept on retreat. And, and then, you know, the other piece this precept helps us is just to bring that sense of integrity, care, into our relationships so that we aren't trying to manipulate people. We really live honoring them as living beings. The fourth precept, to undertake the training to refrain from false speech and to practice kind speech. That's the positive side of it. The power of speech. We're probably all aware of this.
false speech is not just, you know, um, lies. It's really speech that creates conflict, harm. Uh, can be seen as to refrain from false speech, slanderous speech, harsh speech, and idle chatter. On the positive side, to say, to speak that which is true, kind, gentle, and useful. With speech, it's really helpful to look at the motivation, you know, why we're speaking and what underlies it. To see, is it coming from a wholesome place or is it going to lead to more suffering? Is it the cause to division amongst people or is it speech that engenders harmony, engenders trust, engenders truthfulness? The helpful aspect of being on retreat is that we really start to pay more attention to our thoughts and our thoughts precede speech. So it's a great training for when we begin to speak again in our lives and for helping us to see the underlying motivation. The five marks of well-spoken words are timely, true, gentle, purposeful, and spoken with a mind of loving-kindness. The last of the precepts is to refrain from using intoxicants which cloud the mind and cause heedlessness. On the positive side, practicing caring for body and mind. It's easy to see that, you know, if we're using intoxicants in a harmful way that, you know, it just, we don't see the consequences of our actions. It, it, it just is a, a way that there's no access to wisdom because there's no clear seeing. And we begin to see that by taking care of both body and mind, this leads to a strengthening of wisdom. You know, just within the body, that if we take care of the body, there's the energy for practice, the energy to work skillfully in our lives. And if we're protecting the mind, then we see that which causes more pain. As well as the precepts, the um, ethical conduct includes right livelihood and just that we live in a way that reflects a wholesome mind. We live in a way that is not deceitful, that we gain our livelihood uh, through means that takes into account the welfare, and happiness of all beings. That in our means of livelihood, we have the basis of 
these five training guidelines that the Buddha offered. Through training in ethical conduct, we really begin to get glimmers, glimpses of the radiant heart, the pure heart, that is not burdened by past unwholesome actions. It allows us to live from this place of kindness and caring. It allows us to express wisdom in the way that we live. I'd like to end tonight with another teaching from the Dalai Lama. This comes from his book, The Ethics for a New Millennium. It is worth reminding ourselves that what brings the greatest joy and satisfaction in life are those actions we undertake out of concern for others. Indeed, we can go further. For whereas the fundamental questions of human existence, such as why we are here, where we are going, and whether the universe had a beginning, have each elicited different responses in different philosophical traditions. It is self-evident, though, that a generous heart and wholesome actions lead to greater peace. And it is equally clear that their negative negative counterparts bring undesirable consequences. Happiness arises from virtuous causes. If we truly desire to be happy, there is no other way to proceed but by way of virtue. It is the method by which happiness is achieved. And we might add that the basis of virtue, its ground, is ethical discipline. So let's just sit for a moment. May all beings come to know the joy of the virtuous mind. So closing with the chanting of the reflections on the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.